Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. And today's episode uh, is going to be a couple of historians discussing our reactions to E3 uh, and the games were announced uh, during that conference uh, this week. Uh, so joining me, as always, uh, is my friend, John Harney. Hey, John, how's it going? Uh, it's going well, Bob. How are things with you? Very well. Thank Good. you. It's been a busy summer so far, uh, but I'm really excited to sit down and talk about some games. Uh, so I think the first kind of big title that was mentioned, uh, one that maybe is not a big surprise since there was a lot of leaks about it uh, throughout the past month, uh, is Assassin's Creed. We are the first. The first to see the gods. The first to tame their beasts. The first to guard the soul from evil. We conquered this land. Uh, So they are coming out with a new Assassin's Creed game, which is a prequel uh, called Assassin's Creed Origins. And it is set in ancient Egypt. Uh, So, John, have you gotten a chance to take a look at this game? Yeah, well, I watched the trailer. Um, I've been kind of reading, you know... Well, that makes you an expert. Makes me an expert. Yeah, it makes me as much of an expert as the internet was on Far Cry Five two weeks ago. You know, Um, (laughs) I, you know, by the way, the only reason I didn't write a blog post about Far Cry Five is that um, I'm just too busy to do it. Um, So (laughs) I should be less cheeky. Um, I'm as interested as I can get about an Assassin's Creed game. I mean, I kind of have mixed feelings in the sense that I kind of feel over Assassin's Creed because I don't think I've really honest to God, enjoyed an Assassin's Creed game since Assassin's Creed 2. Um, mm. But that puts me in the minority in video game fans. And and we've talked about this in the podcast before, but, you know, I have students who come to me all the time and Assassin's Creed brought them to the idea of, I want to talk about video games and history and yeah. mix them together. The setting is really exciting. I know a big question you had, because we talked about it on Twitter before the trailer emerged, was will they even go near the topic of slaves in ancient Egypt? And I think uh, they do. I think the trailer and the choice of song makes it very clear they're going to go there. It's not clear how they're going to go there. Um, so so a lot of encouragement there. So I'm a, a wee bit jaded, um, but I suspect that that feeling will lift by the time the game comes out. And at the end of the day, the setting, you know, ancient Egypt, I think, is such a great setting because it gets you away from Europe and the West and all these things. But it's also ancient Egypt, which is one of the most popular historical periods in, you know, Western hist- historiography for 150 years so Mm -hmm. um i think a a lot of reasons to be positive despite my initial perhaps completely unfair uh, jaded reaction right and you know for a series that's focused on climbing on ancient buildings i mean it doesn't get (laughs) much more ancient or big uh than a pyramid oh that's Uh, awesome so that sounds exciting i'm interested more so in the gameplay aspects so far what they've shown is uh free roaming open worlds uh, throughout Egypt, uh, and it looks like you'll be traveling on foot, on horseback, uh, on boat as well. And these are some elements that have been a part of Assassin's Creed in the past. I mean, I can think, for instance, I think it was Assassin's Creed 2, where there was actually horseback riding moments uh, in in between cities uh, that you had to use. 
but there's never really been a true kind of roaming open world where you have a transition between cities, towns, and then countryside. Um, you know, there of course, all the Assassin's Creed games have been open world games, but they've usually been set in one or two cities. Uh, so this will be interesting. I mean, it seems like, you know, from the footage I've seen so far that they're really trying to go after kind of a Witcher feel, kind of one of these larger uh, open world RPGs. And they've already mentioned that there's going to be some uh, RPG elements to the game as far as how you can spec your character and what kind of equipment they have, which I think has been a part of Assassin's Creed since almost the beginning, but this is going to be kind of more focused on those elements. And I think that that's, that's probably the right move. And speaking as somebody who has played every single Assassin's Creed game, except rogue, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to some change to the formula, to uh, the action, to the, you know, the type of upgrades that you can get, because it seems prior to this point, it's all been very, kind of standard, very pat. So I think that those changes interest me more than the setting does. Uh, so that's my two cents on it. Well, I think it's an interesting comparison to talk about The Witcher because, you know, the very first Assassin's Creed game had kind of, you know, run, you know, going on horseback from the city out into the countryside back into the city. But The Witcher game is particularly Witcher 3. You know, when you leave a major city in The Witcher 3, or at least you go beyond the walls, that is, and now you're in these kind of little ramshackle buildings just outside the wall, they felt like fully fleshed out kind of the kind of minor quasi-satellite communities, quasi-urban communities that that do exist in those situations, you know. And so to see them and, you know, one could argue that them dropping the minimap or the the kind of the UI they've had for the RPG elements, that it's it's kind of the same thing. But it is heartening to me that the year off was taken seriously. It wasn't literally just letting the field lie fallow and then coming back with the same thing. Yeah. Very encouraging. And something we might talk about later that I really feel, you know, again, interesting you mentioned The Witcher in the same breath because I just feel the medium is just pushing itself forward so fast now. Um, where a game like Assassin's Creed, where that team does feel they have to respond to The Witcher 3, directly or indirectly, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever that connection is. And I think that's great because The Witcher 3 was great. And I think that yeah. it's, I think that it's I, I'm really happy to see these really successful games when it comes to storytelling, you know, really kind of throwing down the gauntlet. And, and Ubisoft, in theory, could just do whatever the heck they wanted. And so I'm glad to see them making real efforts to change stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, speaking of Ubisoft, they've got uh, a pirate game coming out called Skull and Bones, uh, which is a, kind of a multiplayer focused game. Uh, it's taking place, uh, I believe it's supposed to be in the kind of early 18th century uh, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so they showed a kind of a, uh, a gameplay trailer uh, for this game in which you are uh, attacking other ships that are manned by other multiplayer crews. Uh, you have the opportunity basically to uh, play an upgraded version of Assassin's Creed 4's naval combat uh but in a multiplayer setting and that game really looks pretty fun although it's interesting to me that you know along with this there's another pirate game coming out pirates are still very <laughs> hot right now john every world history class i teach every in my career so far there's been at least one student once right on the pirates on pirates yeah yeah and all of them want to do it really badly to begin with <laughs> to begin with yeah. Um, yeah, no, there's uh, there's also the rare game, um, Sea of Thieves. Yeah. 
is the other one. When when I first I was watching the conference and um, I really thought it was um, I thought they're doing it. Assassin's Creed Black Flag 2. Why not? You know, two yeah. Assassin's Creed games. Um, and of course, I'm sure it is. Well, I mean, it has to be the same tech as Black Flag. And when he came up Skull and Bones, like, yeah, OK, so. But it's it's basically that it's or I guess it's a multiplayer only sequel to that kind of thing. Is it multiplayer only or multiplayer it, it, dominant? I, I believe it is multiplayer only. Yeah, um, so, so that'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah but uh, apparently you've got the ability to customize your captain. Uh, you can throughout the game collect additional ships, uh, sloops, and frigates, uh, and you use various technologies such as mortars and cannons and rockets. Um, there's also a treasure, treasure hunting mechanic, uh, which is also in Sea of Thieves as well. So, uh, it's interesting to me that, yeah, there's so many pirate games now. It's, it, it's almost <laughs> like, you know, what was it half a dozen years ago where you had, uh, zombie games appearing just out of the ether. Um, right. so I feel like pirates have kind of positioned themselves not on their own accord, but you know, uh, pirates are just kind of. <laughs> been positioned as uh, it's kind of stand-in the new the new theme yeah. uh for new video games coming out so that's i think it's interesting it and obviously i mean these games i skull and bones doesn't look like it's trying to be historical no uh, sea of thieves obviously not but you know i think that those games would still serve uh as a useful way to talk about uh the history of piracy especially in the context of something like history respawned well, I think Skull and Bones in particular would be a great chance for History Respond episode, particularly maybe have Brian Glass back even to revisit yeah. one of, was it your very first episode? It was of History the very Respond? first the one. very first yeah. one. Because I was watching the uh, trailer, you know, and they have these ridiculous mastheads um, that are very clearly, I assume, going to be a game mechanic. You can get these, you can pimp your boat, I guess, kind of thing, you know, to use that. That's some 90s lingo for the younger listeners. I don't know if that's still being used um, to really make your boat your own or whatever. But but the, the, thematically, thematically to kind of uh, approach this idea of individuality or do you know what I mean? This this notion of the pirate as an individual agent. They, they, I'm already thinking back to conversations you had with Brian in that first episode um, mm-hmm. about pirates constitutions, all that kind of cool stuff. And mm-hmm. that was some of the some of the more fun parts of that particular conversation. And uh that just, at least on this very brief viewing, I think Skull and Bones will totally give you guys some stuff to chew over again. Absolutely. Might have to make it a double barrel episode. You know, Sea of Thieves and Skull and Bones. That would be that would be epic. Yeah, be uh, maybe I could even convince Brian to buy the game and then we could play multiplayer together yeah. at the same time. That would be awesome. Well, by then you'll be doing Giant Bomb long play styles. You know, Brian Glass <laughs> and Bob Whitaker. Uh, Endur- endurance it runs. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, moving on, there was, uh, an interesting game announced by Electronic Arts, uh, and the game is called A Way Out. What's your plan? Stay the hell away from me, okay? This game is a co-op only game, uh, story-driven game, in which you're uh, in a prison during the 1970s. And this is being developed by the same group of people who uh, created a game called Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, which was kind of one of my favorite games of the last generation of consoles. I think it also came out on PC, but uh, did you get a chance to see anything about this game? 
I saw a little bit. I didn't see an awful lot. I, I mean, the little bits and pieces that I've seen were very gameplay mechanic focused as opposed to setting focused. Um, I'm also familiar with Brothers. Brothers is on PC um, and it's really good. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm enthusiastic about it, but I didn't see an awful lot, I'm afraid. All I saw was this interesting split screen mechanic where you were constantly seeing, you know, your half and, and the other person's half of the, yeah. of the game. Well, it, it's got these two main characters who kind of seem very much at odds. They're only working together in order to escape. And I mean, it reminds me a lot, of course, of kind of the prison genre of movies from, uh, I'd say, the late 50s through the uh, mid 70s in the United States. And it kind of has got a very defiant ones feel to it. But then also the kind of visual aesthetic is very reminiscent of Escape from Alcatraz uh, with Clint Eastwood. So I'm just, you know, we don't know much about the story, but I'm, I'm very interested uh, in that game and in that setting. Uh, but it, it is kind of curious, you know, with so much discussion going on within society at large about uh, the racial elements to mass incarceration in the United States that oh, we have two white characters uh, in the main role. So we'll see. I mean, obviously, the game hasn't come out. We don't know enough about the story to really judge yet. But uh, I think that's one to really keep an eye on. on. Yeah, definitely. And of course, it allows you to talk about the setting of the game. I'm not an expert in the history of American incarceration, but as I understand it, there's been this huge uptick since the mid to late 80s, partly as a response to, well, to crime levels anyway. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know where the setting lies on that trajectory or doesn't lie, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the race one is always tricky. I mean, going back to Assassin's Creed Origins as well, I mean, it's funny... I probably need to take a break from Twitter, but, you know, Twitter was fun during E3 because there were a couple of genuine people freaking out moments, like Beyond yeah. Good and Evil 2 was one of those. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> I, I, I still can't believe that. I just spent, like, a few minutes retweeting everyone in my feed because I thought it was so funny. So my Twitter feed for a few minutes became people John follows losing their mind over Beyond Good and Evil 2. <laughs> um, but... Uh, in the sense that, you know, there were people already kind of complaining about Assassin's Creed Origins. And I'm like, okay, it's a it's a really difficult one uh, to thread. Um, but yeah. of course, as historians, what we bring to it is okay, because what some people would say, oh, so the setting makes it different. Well, maybe not, and probably not, actually. <laughs> but that's where we kind of come in as historians, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so next game I wanted to talk about uh, was the follow-up uh, to Wolfenstein The New Order. Yes. Uh, and this one is called uh, Wolfenstein, the new Colossus. Uh, Frau Engel, uh, she's been hunting for you. She's been moving heaven and earth, and today she found you. You think your hero, William Joseph Blaskovich? Uh, so, uh, John, tell me your impressions of this. It was a very long. Uh, trailer mm-hmm. which had mm-hmm. kind of a weird intro uh, which yep. didn't immediately say Wolfenstein uh, but then follow through with uh, kind of in-game uh, material and then finally with kind of gameplay uh, right. parts of the trailer so uh, if you haven't seen that yet if you're listening to this definitely go and check that out because it is it's an experience <laughs> I have to say um, I currently am at home with a three-year-old and a three-week-old Um and so time is at a premium for me. And I watched all eight minutes of this video unprompted, <laughs> which is which is a which is a sign of how into it I was. I really enjoyed the first Wolfenstein game. 
um, well, the first, you know, <laughs> the first reimagined. The new sequels. order. Yeah, yeah, the new order. Um, we've discussed this on the podcast before. I really like the way it attacks the horrors of the horrors of that particular war thematically. Yeah. And I love the eight minute trailer. It's funny because, you know, a lot of the reaction to it focused on the quote unquote wackiness. And and to be fair, the publishers themselves kind of the devs themselves kind of talked up the wackiness. Um but it's not really that wacky or any wackier than 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 New Order was. Right. Um, yeah. I um I was really encouraged by it. I think it's going to be a very fun game to cover. Um, I think they're just throwing all kinds of stuff into it. And best of all, at least based on this trailer, um, they're building on the strengths of the first game. And they understand what made the first game so good. They, that, that's yeah. exactly what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a rock-solid shooter. The first game was a rock-solid shooter. But they just little bits and pieces. And what I really like about these Wolfenstein games is how they fit into, you know, on a very meta level, the way that we have fictionalized um, the Nazis in term, you know, you think about Philip K. Dick's uh, Man in the High Castle and also um, Robert Harris's novel of 1993, Fatherland, mm-hmm. um, which is really just a detective story and kind of a whodunit and is not an amazing piece of literature or anything like that, but it's it's a good book. And really the, what makes that book so gripping is that he just went ahead and just imagined that the Nazis had won and what would they have done? Well, they would have, they would have remodeled Berlin the way that Albert Speer said they were going to remodel Berlin. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of the first half of that book. Um, and I think Wolfenstein succeeds in a similar way, which is, okay, we're going to add some Gonzo stuff. You're going to add some of this kind of cyber mech type stuff. Um, but a lot of it is like, well, you know, this is what these guys said they were going to do. <laughs> yeah. Know? So we're going to run with that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you said, they I think they understand Bethesda understands what made that first game uh, or the new order, what made that work. And they're doubling down on that stuff. But, you know, as far as, you know, what you said, it, it does have a lot of these gonzo elements. But this game or uh, this series, I guess you can call it now is one of the the first World War II kind of influence games that kind of deals with the Holocaust, which you can't say yep. for That's right. almost any other World War II series. So, you know, I would say to people who criticize this as being alternate history, in that sense, it's got more history in it than other games that are supposed to be authentic and are supposed to be realistic. So I am definitely willing to give this game uh, the benefit of the doubts. Uh, I'm really fascinated uh, by some of the elements within the trailer. Uh, for instance, it's, it shows one sequence in which uh, Nazis are seen walking down the street with members of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as a historian, I have a bit of a problem with this <laughs> depiction, uh, <laughs> primarily because uh, the Ku Klux Klan wouldn't have a need to wear the full uh, get-up, their full sheets and everything, right. uh, if they are part of the Nazi order. Right? That would just... <laughs> That defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think that that makes for a good juxtaposition for gamers, particularly in the current political climate, to maybe think about things a little bit. If, you know, KKK would get along with Nazis, what does that say? Um, in much the same way that uh, elements within Far Cry 5 uh, might do the same thing uh, with religious cults. So... That's interesting to me. Also, uh, I'm interested to see that at least part of the game looks to be set in New Orleans. Uh, And, of course, we just had a recent game, uh, Mafia 3, set in the same city. So I'm I'm interested to see what that means for, you know, how that city is depicted uh, Mm -hmm. in this kind of alternate history. And 
Also, what does that mean for kind of the important racial elements uh, within New Orleans, which was something that was uh, delved into so exquisitely in Mafia 3? Yeah, I think something that we need to remind people of, I get frustrated by some of the Twitter discourse over the last year of basically doing two-bit racist idiots who like to be on TV um, what they perceive as the honor of calling them Nazis. I know they call themselves Nazis, but like, yes, these guys suck and they're horrible and I'm perfectly happy to see people decry them, but you're kind of, you're undermining the horror of what the Nazis were and what they tried to do and just this sense of the fear of it and the fear of that state. Like this was, you know, when Hannah Arendt is talking about totalitarianism, she's largely talking about Nazis. One of the the bits of the trailer that jumps out to me um, is you're in the diner and I kind of presume that you're you're on the risk of getting caught anyway. But the commandant comes in and the guy gives him the milkshake and everyone's very, very chummy, chummy. And after a minute of small talk, he turns to the camera, turns to you, the player, and says, so show me your papers. And it's yeah. this really nice, chilling moment of like, oh God, like that's, this is this is scary, yeah. horrifying stuff. And I agree with you 100%. I know we've talked about it recently, but I think the writers of these games have done a wonderful job of, of really like I keep saying, taking the real horror of Nazism. Okay, they didn't have massive mechanical dogs that fired you and ate you. <laughs> but um, but that's kind of a metaphorical representation of the depths of the horror of what these guys were. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and that's... So I I, ho- I really hope they, they stick with that. Let's see. Let's let's see how it goes. Yeah. I have high hopes for it. It looks good. It looks great. Uh, I'm disappointed, though, that uh, the Nazi officer was depicted ordering a strawberry ice cream or a strawberry milkshake. That's that's my personal favorite milkshake. So I feel like it's, <laughs> it's kind of done a disservice to strawberry milkshakes. That's it. You can't drink strawberry milkshakes anymore. So. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be a Nazi. Uh, so the other uh, World War II game, the big World War II game that uh, was at E3 was Call of Duty World War II, which we've already talked about in detail in another podcast. But... Uh, the news that came out of E3 related to the multiplayer side of this game, which uh, will allow you to play as uh, basically any race or any gender for either the Americans or the Germans in multiplayer. So uh, basically... Well, this has been an issue for them before. It has, yeah. yeah so yeah. basically this has been an issue, especially with regards to gender, Um Race, as far as I know, has never really been a big issue in Call of Duty multiplayer, but I know gender has, especially with, uh, what was it, a couple of games ago. Uh, might have been Call of Duty Ghost, perhaps? I think that was it. But uh, regardless, uh, I think this is a really interesting decision. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, they're kind of throwing out the history books uh, when it comes uh, to multiplayer, and this is something that you also kind of see uh, with the multiplayer in uh, Battlefield One, but I think this decision is really great because when you know when it comes to the multiplayer, you're not really trying at all to present some sort of historical narrative. Uh, and you know, from my perspective, if there are a historical elements within the multiplayer or even within the main campaign that serve to bring a more diverse group of people into the game, I think that can only be a good thing. So, uh, you know, if you have players out there that want to play, you know, as women or if they want to play as a different race, I say go for it. Uh, But I could see a group of players having a significant problem uh, with this. 
I, I, I get that. I, 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 well, I kind of get where they're coming from, but I, I would be with you on your side of this, which is I just don't see the argument. Um, I think Battlefield One had a little bit of this issue as well, where people were sharing some fantastic gifs of like people firing, you know, um, fully fledged uh, Gatling machine guns on horseback. Um, yeah. In multiplayer, but you couldn't be a woman. Um, uh, so I just I agree with you, and you know some of the some of the history writing or some of the writing of video games out there that is that is quite good does talk about that tension. When is it a game? When is it historically accurate? Because if it's historically accurate, then you would take out this position in Verdun or in Red Orchestra, Rising Sun or whatever, and you would have to go X amount of steps and you would have to lose at a certain point or six of you would have to die out of your 10-person team. or yeah. Like, it wouldn't be a game anymore. It'd be recreation. It'd be recreating the scene, which is which is kind of pointless. I don't mean to retread our steps here, but if you go back to Wolfenstein again, Wolfenstein 2 again, if you look at, in terms of talking about diversity and so on and so on, you have this... Um, you you know, female African-American character, like with a fro and everything in the trailer for that game. Um, but even in that short trailer, um, that character hasn't been thrown in there. She's there to kind of represent this is where the U.S. is in yeah. the early 70s. And it's this kind of cool, interesting, hybridized thing of trying to grab onto something, that an outcropping of what we know was American culture in the early 70s and trying to figure out where it would be with this massive interruption so everything about her makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I but but I agree with you that in multiplayer, it it just isn't relevant, and 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 microtransactions within a couple of months anyway, you'll be able to to put like an Irish flag, for example, on your helmet or something. Oh, like I that. know. Yeah. Right? And that wouldn't be a stark accurate either. And and I don't I don't know that anybody would be complaining about there being Irish flags on your helmet. So why yep. complain that you can be a woman or be anything else? You know. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. Uh, so those were the games that I had listed. John, did you have anything else? Yeah, you know, I, um, I well, I see uh, you have played a bit of Battlefield 1 a lot more than I have. I see In the Name of the Tsar DLC um, was being discussed, which I'm excited by, anything to do with Russia. The Age of Empires remaster is something mm. that I'm genuinely interested in. Um, and, and the Age of Empires remaster for me was kind of a way to, um, I was thinking a lot about how video games are becoming meta now. And this isn't, new of course because video games have been you know cannibalizing themselves forever um but you know there's a shadow of the colossus remake for ps4 coming out the aforementioned beyond good and evil 2 um which it turns out that trailer is all that exists of that game um <laughs> we found out later um i i just intrigued by the way video games are beginning to kind of mind themselves but get better at it um yeah. battle battle tech for example which was a very successful um, Kickstarter project, BattleTech is you know the latest entry, not just in a video game series but in a board game series going back to 1984. Um, video games at the moment as a medium to me, obviously there'll be missteps and not every game is going to be good, but everything just feels comfortable with where it is artistically. Now that isn't to say they're they've reached the peak. I don't think any such thing is true. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of what got me kind of going, and and maybe I'm just in an optimistic mood this week, or maybe it's sleep deprivation from having an infant in the house. <laughs> but the Age of Empires remastered is exciting to me, um, and and again a, a cool excuse to go back and visit it, you know, uh, visit yeah. that particular series. And of course, it's one of the great fundamental series. We, you and I played it as boys, anyway. I'm sure I certainly yeah. played it as a boy. Yeah, um, Mountain Blade Two. Bannerlord kind of jumps out um, as you know more medieval stuff, um, but to kind of I'm I'm curious to see what opportunities that'll give us to talk about kind of you know 
uh, medieval warfare, specifically grabbing peasants and saying, you're coming with me, hold this. Um, <laughs> and then Far Cry 5, which you mentioned briefly, we'll see. We'll see about Far Cry 5. But, you know, there, there's, yeah. there's a long way to go before that game comes out. I, I've got to say I'm pretty pessimistic about Far Cry 5. I know it, it kind of it hit the hot take button uh, when yeah. the trailer came out. I mean, yeah. it just seemed like everybody had a take on the trailer i think both of those takes were really bad especially since <laughs> they were implying so many things about a game that very few people had actually played but i just i feel personally that the formula for far cry is very stale in much the same way that mm-hmm. the assassin's creed formula was pretty stale yeah uh, by the time that they took a year off so uh, you know i I'm very interested to see what it has to say about American society, if anything, but I, I'm more worried about what I see as kind of a continuation of gameplay elements uh, that I'm just, I'm tired. I'm tired of. Yeah. No, they need a break too. I mean, I, I've been playing Dying Light, which is a couple of years old now, which is essentially a Far Cry game, but involving zombies and melee combat only. And, you know, I enjoy getting a lot out of it. Um, but hitting these little roadblocks that weren't roadblocks four years ago, but are now in terms of, I have to do it again, seriously, because I didn't kill that guy. Or wait, you want me to run across the city again? Like why? You know, and four years ago, I'd be like, oh, cool. I get to traverse and I get to do all these things. And now it's like, oh, because you know, the, the medium's moved on so quickly. My take that was never written, um, that would have been <laughs> lukewarm more than the, hot. Oh, I was um, going to say the hottest take of all. No, it, it wouldn't so have been very hot. It, it couldn't be put down in words. <laughs> so hot you could boil an egg on it. Um, no, my take was just going to be that um, we all know what's going to happen, which is they'll dip their toe kind of in it and then run away from it really quickly. And you, you might end up, if you're unlucky, which I suspect it will be, with, you know, the view of religious cults held by a high school student who just read a couple of pretty good books about why religion can be problematic. You know what I mean? Like that's, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It, it ends up being a pretty shallow, that was part of my thing about the hot takes. It's like, why are you guys treating this game like it's going to make any kind of a serious inroad into this discussion oh, no. and then why are you getting mad at it if it doesn't i mean you kind of know it isn't going to so what's 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 your problem i, know. I you know, I know it's it's kind of exhausting a little bit. i i just feel like the the hot takes that came out about that game were because it seemed to speak to a political moment that we're having in the states mm, yeah which i'm i'm not really sure that i'm not sure that a game is quite there yet to make that kind of statement and plus i mean I just wish a journalist would kind of step back and say, we're talking about a Far Cry game here, right? We're yeah. not talking about kind of the next big, uh, you know, indie uh, narrative heady walking right. simulator, right? We're talking about Far Cry, which is all about finding interesting ways to murder people and animals and mm-hmm. then skin them, right? <laughs> that That's Far Cry. Skin um, so, four of them and then you can craft yeah, something. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we're, we're working now... Uh, on an episode about Far Cry 2, which won the most recent uh, patron vote uh, for History Respawn. Uh, so that'll be the episode during July. And, you know, in that game, you've got kind of a, a setting within the ragged wars of uh, Africa during the mm-hmm. 90s and the early 2000s. And no social commentary whatsoever, just kind of <laughs> milking that context for the purpose of a game about murder. Right. right, right. I mean, that, in a lot of ways, it doesn't get more disgusting than that, just plain and simple. I will say, though, in Far Cry 2's defense, um, 
the mechanics of Far Cry 2 and in particular Far Cry 2's role in popularizing this concept of emergent gameplay to the point where now it's it's you see you see the you see the footprint or that you see the fingerprints of Far Cry 2 in so many games that are produced now i think that the ability to just walk away from it and do other things and almost be a free agent in the horrible chaos was to its credit and i also think if you look at the characters that you play they're all terrible people um you know these like these little one sheet kind of characters they give you to play um but then again it's almost it, you could easily argue that I'm reading too much into Far Cry 2. What I'm kind of trying to say is that it's valuable through its absence of context, that it's almost like a deliberate decision because the second you try to bring context in, you get into trouble. What I'll say in Far Cry 5's defense is um, I do think it's encouraging that a large AAA game is trying to get somewhere near something that's controversial. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, you know, listen, there's movies trying to interact with these moments and they're failing. Sure, yeah. Like like there have been a couple of movies about... um, whistleblowing in the last couple of years and they haven't they haven't landed and the main reason they haven't landed is because they haven't been good i mean all the president's men is a hugely important movie in large part because it's really good yeah <laughs> you know in addition to that but i mean no I, I i completely see what you're saying about far cry 2 and i wouldn't i'm not trying to refute your point per se just to kind of say that at the time i think there's an interesting discussion there so does the gameplay not exempt it from that criticism but does the gameplay complicate the criticism and the answer could definitely be no, but I think it's an interesting yeah. question. I just I just see it as, and this is kind of a point that I was hoping to make in the episode, but I'll go ahead and share it now. I just think that there was a time, especially when Far Cry 2 came out, that criticism of gameplay, uh, as in you know artistic criticism of gameplay, had reached a point uh, where it could tackle things like emergent gameplay and kind of see the beauty within Far Cry 2, but narrative criticism... Mm-hmm. of the games hadn't gotten to the point where i think if you were to release far cry 2 now it would be hit with all sorts of criticism that just didn't quite exist mm-hmm. you know at that point in the mid 2000s i definitely agree i mean i'm thinking of npcs you interact with in far cry 2 i think that um the pro- one of the problems we have that criticism now is some of it is excellent and badly needed, and some of it is just kind of really well-intentioned but not very good hmm. or misinformed. And my problem with that isn't that it exists. My problem is then that that pretty regressive people would use that as ammunition. Oh, well, this isn't well done or whatever. You know, this is happening a lot in, in other political conversations. Um, then again, I suppose if Far Cry 2 was being made now, it would be different. Yeah, one would, one I think would you're think. right. You're right. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, yeah. And it's probably still the best Far Cry game. Um. Hmm. I think personally, uh, but again, I'm probably biased because of the moment I was in when I first played it, you know, yeah. but yeah, like walking into a bar and talking to, you know, a heavily accented, you know, African, black African reverend, it's all a bit, it's all a bit, you know, it does feel a bit dated. Yeah. So uh, I guess that does it for our E3 talk. Are, are there any other games from the show, non-historical that kind of caught your eye? Uh, War Groove caught my eye which is a blatant ripoff of Advance Wars, um, but made by people that I really like, um, that were in, um, the publishers were, are involved in a game called Starbound, which is a really good uh, kind of version of Terraria. Mm. Um, um, everything by Devolver I love. And so Devolver didn't introduce anything new at E3, but Devolver had a kind of a crazy like fake um, <laughs> keynote. That Have you seen this? Yeah, a very uh, very Austin 
keynote. Very Austin and very kind of a very late 1990s style. How can we be funny, but also kind of, you know, a, you know, poke at norms. Oh, we rip people's arms off and have lots of blood. It was very retro in that way. I don't know if it was intended mm-hmm. to be so, but I kind of love that they did it. And I kind of love that they're having a big massive fight with E3 over claiming that they like got that. the city of yeah. LA to, to take away their, their, their rented space. And they say that they're going to have a big event in Austin uh, next year during E3. So... I'm looking forward to that. That might be a good alternative. Oh for man, go back home. Good. Go back to my hometown and E3 take it South. Easy. Yeah, go E3 South. Yeah, I'll be por- I'll report live on the scene. <laughs> um, they just make crazy good games. Yeah, they do. Uh, they them. just really make good games. Between Devolver and Amplitude, between the two of those guys, I mean, that would be enough video games for me. Yeah. at least in my current rate of playing. Yeah. Um, and then otherwise, um. Maybe to to finish up, because uh, I think maybe you feel differently. I I got a positive vibe out of this E3. I thought that um overall I'm really happy with the with where the medium is. I think the medium feels confident. It feels good. The actual talks were kind of soul destroying. I forgot that. I hadn't watched them in a couple <laughs> of years. You know, these guys come out and just try to make jokes and share all these buzzwords, and it's kind of horrifying. But oh man, the Xbox One I think oh. was the worst for that. They're not good. But but when you get to the actual games, there was a lot to like. Um. So I, I came away I came away honestly thinking I'm never going to play half the games that look good to me here. Like my, my days of 50 hours a week of playing games are over um, and it makes me a bit sad. I mean, I like my kids, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I envy I envy the single young people of today or the, or the people who uh, who do leave their families for 40, 50 hours a week to play games because there's a lot of good games coming out. Well, I, I'm in the midst of having a throwback week uh, with both my wife and my daughter out of town. I've been playing hours and hours of Horizon Zero Dawn just about every night this week. <laughs> I think I put in probably about 15, maybe 17 hours into this game. And wow, oh, it's it's spectacular. <laughs> uh, but they, they come back tomorrow night, so I've got to kind of wrap up my, yeah. my week of hedonism. And by hedonism, I mean drinking one beer. And playing about five hours of a game—that that's it for me now. That's, oh, I I know that's exactly really what you cutting mean. loose. I know. I I go crazy when I was out of town. I'm I sit down and I put on my PlayStation. It stays on for like a whole three hours. Sometimes it's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm playing. Uh, actually, I'm playing uh, Tales of the Borderlands right now. Um, and I kind of hoped my Jen, my wife, would get into it, like she has before sometimes in story heavy games. But she kind of hasn't. She's distracted. In fairness, um, that game is funny. It's one of the funniest games I've played in a while. I think that it occasionally drifts into the kind of humor I don't like from the Borderlands series. Um, but it's I'm in the middle of episode three, and they're they're every, every episode's had one or two genuine moments that were like that's actually that's that's genuinely funny, not video mm. game funny, funny funny. Mm. Um, so I've been enjoying it. I yeah I played that last this time last year I think, and it I was a little lukewarm on it by the end uh i thought that the the beginning episodes were pretty strong i thought there were moments in episode four that were really strong uh in particular there is a um i don't know if you've gotten to it yet but a pretend gunfight not yet you've seen it okay well tell me when you get to that send me a text (laughs) or something i'm interested (laughs) i think that might be one of the best moments in a game that i've ever i've ever played uh but i think by the end it kind of it kind of went a little off note for me, oh, but that's disappointing. I'll, to hear. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on that uh, because I think it, it's definitely a game that uh, is worth is worthy of a sequel uh-huh. for sure. So, well, for those who have played it, um, my favorite moment so far involves a spoon 
and a retina scan. <laughs> that was really, really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny. It's funny you say that because in episode three now, I'm kind of saying, yeah, you know what? I do like Telltale games and I know they aren't all that, but, you know, I really enjoyed um, Wolf Among Us and I really liked the first season of Walking Dead and maybe I just have to pick and choose which games. Yeah. Um, I think but so. but you know we'll we'll see let yeah I I'll share with you next podcast how it all how it all ended up yeah all right well I think that does it for this episode of the History Respawn podcast thanks so much for tuning in uh, if you like the work that we do uh, please consider visiting our page on uh, patreon.com forward slash history respond uh, where you can check out uh, what kind of benefits you can get uh, if you decide. Uh, to become a patron. And with that, until next time, 